This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, I'm your Leader ReadyCast host, Eric McNulty. In today's program, we're going to look back at the unprecedented 2017 hurricane season that brought us Harvey, Irma, Jose, and Maria in order to look forward to 2018 and beyond. We'll explore lessons that should be applied as communities face more extreme weather events. Joining me today is Rich Cerino, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. He's also former Deputy Administrator of FEMA and the former Chief of EMS in Boston. Rich has seen many natural disasters and understands the challenges and opportunities at the federal, state, and local levels. Welcome, Rich. Good. Thank you for having me here today. Look forward to it. Uh, a great pleasure. So one of the, the things that sticks out about 2017 is we did have three, four storms in a row. What are the particular things you learned about facing multiple storms in a relatively short period of time? Uh, one thing that we have to consider is having that many storms in succession with not much time in between each one really put a stress on the entire system, put a stress at the local level, uh, state level, and the federal level. The federal level had to look at these as all separate instances. You had Harvey that really uh, one of the largest storms ever to hit the continental United States uh, in Harvey. What did that happen in Texas? Uh, really caused tremendous damage. Uh, and federal resources were sent there as well as private sector, the Red Cross, the nonprofit, sent lots of resources to Texas to assist with the survivors uh, in the response and also in the recovery that's still ongoing and is going to be ongoing for years. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that the recovery takes years. Uh, but then right on the heels of that, we had uh, Hurricane Irma that went right into Florida that caused tremendous damage. Uh, as well as displaced lots of folks and then had to move a lot of resources from Texas over to Florida. And again, on the heels of that, Hurricane Jose and then Maria uh, hit the Caribbean. And the devastation in the Caribbean and in Puerto Rico is something that was um, monumental. And the amount of damage, the amount of lives lost, as well as the recovery is going to take years to do. But the resources to move in the continental United States was somewhat easier, but then you had to deal with uh, Puerto Rico and the island and moving resources there. And the infrastructure on Puerto Rico was not in great shape to begin with. Uh, So it was really a cascading effect. And I actually asked the question to a a number of our students uh, recently and says, what if this was reversed? What if Maria hit first uh, in Puerto Rico and then to Florida and then Harvey? What if we had the same type of response? Because Interesting. We would have had a lot of resources that would have went to Puerto Rico, and then would have, could we, would have we pulled the resources out to go to Florida and then to Texas? So timing matters as these all happened, and the scope of each one matters as well. And are we, are we planning differently now? I know I've been hearing talk of multi-catastrophic events for years. Then we get one, and it seemed like it really did stress the system. So are we, are we planning for this now? I, we've been planning for this for a while. We planned at multiple simultaneous catastrophic events uh, in the past. But I think a lot of people in, didn't really look that they could happen. 
we learned in Japan after the uh, earthquake, followed by a tsunami, followed by a nuclear incident, that they all this can happen. And we've seen this past year that it can happen. But again, if we look at these, in, if they were all happen simultaneously, not necessarily strong, a combination of different kinds of storms, uh, the impact would have been much greater. Uh, we've learned a lot of lessons from these. FEMA is doing a good job going back and looking to see what they can change, but have to realize that this is not just a FEMA problem. Uh, Administrator Long has talked about the culture of preparedness. We talked about bringing preparedness and changing the culture. We need to do that as a country. We need to do that as a state. We need to do that as territories. We need to do that as communities, neighborhoods, and as individuals. Because if you look at it just a little bit differently and say we want to be, uh, have the citizens prepared and have the citizens resilient, then you will have a resilient neighborhood, then you can have a resilient county, then you can have a resilient city, resilient state, and a resilient country. So I think we, it's not just a FEMA issue, it's how we all have to come together to look at these problems. We also have to look at how we're going to recover from these issues as well. It's a good point you bring up about that, that culture of preparedness and the role of the, the person, the individual, as that first line of defense. And I know particularly in, in the Harvey response, we saw the public as first responders. Um, how has that phenomenon grown? I know it's been uh, more and more evident in events. So how has that grown? How has it changed? And how are officials dealing with it? I think people are realizing that the public are and should be the first real first responders. They have the ability, they're there. The traditional first responders, EMS, police, and fire, are going to be overwhelmed in the disasters. And when they are overwhelmed, we have to look at how we can look at other ways. Because neighbors helping neighbors on a day-to-day -day basis matters. In a critical incident such as these hurricanes that we saw, it truly matters. Because if a person can be prepared themselves, they can then help their neighbor. They can help their elderly neighbor who needs help. They can help their neighbor on the other side that may have a single parent with a few kids, help them. And then we, in addition to that, as we start to utilize social media and people able to connect more, we saw, for example, in Texas, and we saw it in Louisiana early, is the Cajun Navy. The Cajun Navy able to go in and help rescue people in what appeared to be totally disorganized, but actually was very organized. They were able to communicate amongst themselves. They were able to communicate with local officials where to bring people, where to bring the survivors, the people they saved, and bring them to one place. And I think we're going to start to see more of that self, people coming together by themselves without government influence. And I think that's actually a very good thing. And then working with government to say, this is what we want to do. Make sure you bring people to a safe place. And I think we're going to see more and more of the public and the neighbors helping neighbors. And I think that's something that we should be encouraging as well. No, I, and I think you're right. And it reminds me of a visit I made to Washington with our colleagues here at the MPLI and invited to a prestigious meeting to talk about resilience and asked for recommendations. And we said, block parties. And they sort of laughed at us. We said, no, actually, when neighbors know neighbors, they're better able to help each other. And they know who lives in the house next door, or the house three doors down, and who is the person with the uh, needs a wheelchair or has certain medical needs or whatever it happens to be. But when neighbors get to know neighbors, they're more likely to help each other. And that's, it's low cost. It's got many, many dividends. And it's something that maybe it sounds silly to some people, but I think we're seeing it play out more and more. 
I, I think you're absolutely right. And in San Francisco and a number of other cities, they've actually helped develop that. And not just have the block parties, but have a block party around preparedness. Also, if they meet at a local park or a recreation area, that they can actually look at how do we design the parks now and how do we build solar panels when they have areas where people can congregate underneath to get out of the sun or out of the rain. Picnic tables, put solar panels on those. Have places where that's where people can go to get charge their batteries for their cell phones or have light. Depending on how deep you get into it, how do you design that so people can utilize things on a recreational basis But then during a crisis, it's not only a meeting place, a place to get power, it's a place you could distribute food, and maybe it's a place where you can have safe water, where water can come up as well. It's where you could have pipes meet, and San Francisco and other cities are looking at that. So it's a matter of how to utilize, bring the neighbors together in a block party, but underneath in certain conditions and set that, and that's where the cities uh, can really help get involved as well. That's really smart planning, and it sounds like it's a great way to, to get multiple uses so we're not just building a disaster shelter, as you say. It's, it's using things that we can, they're built for every day that can easily flip into being critical resources in a, in a disaster response. Exactly, and, you know, if they're going to have a nice barbecue there, it's built in, well, now they have some place they can cook as well during the, a crisis. Absolutely. One of the other things we saw uh, or have seen over the last few years, and I think it really played out uh, during the hurricanes this year as well, is the increasing use of social media. And in some cases, when people can't get through to 911, all of a sudden they're tw- tweeting, hey, Houston PD, I'm at 123 Smith Street and need something. What are you seeing happening around that? What lessons have we learned? I think what, what we're seeing is the traditional use of 911 is still the preferred method when people need life-saving help is to call 911 or have, have somebody call 911 on their behalf if they can't. Because that's how most major cities in this country still send out emergency resources. Uh, some cities are monitoring Twitter, but it's impossible to monitor the amount of calls, the amount of tweets that come in to pick out the right ones. Uh, so we still encourage people to call 911. Monitoring social media is important, however, to get a sense of what's going on overall. People still go to that to get some help to rescues, but don't want people to start tweeting to get access to 911 because that could get lost in a large incident as well with thousands and millions of tweets sometimes. Absolutely. I know one of our, our current NPLI project teams is looking at how might an agency be able to triage the Twitter traffic to see what's real and what's not, and also to deploy the right resources, because someone may reach out and say, hey, Houston PD, when actually they need Houston FD or Houston EMS to show up somewhere. Uh, but you're right, the, the volume can get overwhelming. But I also know if you can't get through to 911, people get desperate. And where do they reach now? To their right. phones. People go social media and monitoring social media is crucial. And most cities do have the ability to monitor, do have even software to help filter out information. Uh, but you can also grab very valuable information as to where, how people are, where they're moving, what, what floods are happening in certain areas, how you can start to measure floods in, in certain areas. And different academic institutions are starting to look at that and measure that, MIT being one, is how taking a lot of information off of social media to actually look at the flooding, where it's going, how it's happening. Uh, We saw some of that happen in all three of the hurricanes in Harvey, how quickly the water came up. The images that we've all seen many times on social media actually did help. But for people for individual help, we still want them to call 911 when they have that. Do you think that local and state agencies are 
getting as sophisticated as they need to be around social media? Do they are there a few out there that are leading, or is it still a catch-up game of you know it's that thing we'd like to do, but we're always too busy doing everything else? I think most major cities now in their emergency operations centers and some of their op, uh, daily operations centers uh, do monitor social media regularly. However, uh, a large majority of cities and states are not. And I think in a, certainly in a crisis information, it's one of the largest tools that people have uh, to gather information. There's the uh, Federal Social Media Working Group that has published some great tools for people to go and access where they can get a whole handbook of things that they should look at to set up and to help develop social media and monitoring social media. There's also a number of uh, groups that in a crisis can actually go, uh, visa teams that can actually go out in virtual social media teams that can go out and assist in, in disasters, that can go to uh, city and state EOCs that can help people monitor that. So there's a number of tools that are available out there for people who don't have a robust uh, social media monitoring, uh, social media presence. They have teams that can go out and help with those. Is this also an area where the, uh, the crusty old folks who are running things might want to turn it over to the kids for a bit and say, help us figure this out? Yeah, I, I think it's not just uh, turning it over to the kids. I think it's, it's listening. It's uh, one of the things that we always want to get is good situational awareness. And situational awareness that people get is not just through traditional media, not just through 911 calls, not just through reports on the radio, but a large amount of information that you can and should be getting is from social media. All sorts of social media, uh, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and there's some great tools out there to help assist which, which ones you want. And some of, the, uh, some of the major cities have great programs. And you, you've alluded to this, but I think that one of the uh, most powerful aspects of social media is that it does allow you to engage in two-way communication. Again, traditionally, on the government side, the, the, the comms operation has been, de has been designed around broadcast. We're going to tell you what's going on, uh, not so much about bringing information in, whereas social media by its very nature, its very structure, uh, allows you to take in a lot of information if you're listening. Uh, how did you see this notion of two-way communication playing out in the hurricanes? In uh, the hurricanes, all, all across all three hurricanes, we, we saw people uh, reporting into what's really going on. Uh, I mentioned the having the Cajun Navy was uh, all originated and uh, utilized through social media. Uh, that's how they organized, that's how they brought people together and they saved many lives. Uh, in social media, we saw even when there was a lot of power out in Puerto Rico, uh, social media was the way that we were getting some, some of the best information, in, especially in some of the remote parts of the islands, is to, is to get some of that information in some of the other Caribbean islands as well that would damage some of the first images that came out were via social media. So it's an absolute critical tool in how we communicate, uh, but it's not just getting the information. We have to send that information out as to where people can go to be safe, to get, where they can go to get medications, where they can go to get water. Uh, utilizing it as a two-way information is absolutely critical, but also listening to what people have to say and then adapting to that. It's not just that you know we're sending you information, you send us information, but take the information that is re being received from social media and then adapt and change uh, based off of that. And do you see agencies that are actually doing that now, robust enough to be able to do that? Yes. Uh, as I say, most major cities are doing that. They're able to listen to what it is. FEMA listens to the social media, monitors social media, and then will uh, reply to people's requests uh, as they need it. If you follow, uh, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter, there's usually a good conversation back and forth. 
in obviously in a crisis you're not going to answer every single tweet or every single post but you can get a sense and answer the critical ones so you're sending a large amount of information to people another aspect of this hurricane season were the politics of it and i know that the people i know in the response community and probably you as well are really happy when the politicians are kind of over there someplace and just out of the way so you can do your job. Unfortunately, that isn't reality. And without getting partisan in any way, there was definitely interesting political dynamics uh, that went on from Texas all the way to Puerto Rico. What's your advice to, again, the professionals out there who are listening to this? How do you decode the politics and how do you make sure they don't get in your way to any greater extent than absolutely necessary? Well, I think, you know, the idea that, yes, we'd all like to have the politicians off to the side over there is not realistic at all. Understanding that the politics of disasters is, is, is just as important as how you manage other parts of the disaster. The politics uh, within a disaster is the old saying, you don't want to exchange business cards at the scene of a disaster, actually includes politicians as well. You want to know your local politicians long before that. If you work in a city and you're an emergency manager, you're going to know your mayor. But do you know your congressmen? Do you know your uh, senators? Do you know the people in the governor's office? Understanding that all the different people that are going to come together during a disaster, some have direct authority, a lot don't have any authority, they think they have authority. Sometimes we have to remind people there is a United States Constitution and the state and governors have rights that perhaps federal government doesn't have. And sometimes we have to remind our senators and our congressmen of that. But Again, you don't want to do that during a disaster. Having the relationships with the political leadership is absolutely key. And understanding that they have a role. They have a very important role. Uh, sometimes it's how they communicate with the public. And at the local level, the mayor is the one that's going to be responsible to his citizens and the governor to her citizens. So understanding the relationships and their authorities is absolutely key. And that's, and depending on the scope, it is going to involve the president of the United States, regardless of who it is. The president is going to be involved, and these were all three large disasters. So it's not just the, the president, but that includes the White House and all the staff at the White House. It includes other federal agencies you need to come together. So understanding the politics of a disaster is absolutely critical. And to assume that there is no politics in the disaster is putting your head in the sand. And certainly one of the primary ways that people, particularly outside of the immediately affected area, judge the success or failure of a response is based on what they find out in the media. And the, who does the media always go to for comments? The mayor, the governor, the other political figure. And so people who oh, I also think tend to be naturally inclined to support first responders. I mean, they're supportive of that community, but they also have they know when things don't look good on the ground. It's our colleague Bob Blendon has said, uh, rarely does a mayor or governor get elected based on their ability to handle a disaster. But one of the primary ways they don't get reelected is to handle one poorly. So they know their job is on the line if it doesn't go well. And it's one thing that I you know, had the opportunity to speak. Uh, one year we had 29 new governors and uh, they all came to Washington and I had the ability to talk to all of them at once and told them that quite bluntly, that this, you know, you may have not ever considered emergency management and public safety in when they were getting elected, but if they don't do this right, this is what everybody remember, and that this is one thing that will and has cost many elected officials their job. And your job as a good emergency manager, a good person in public safety that's charged with this at any federal, state, or local level is to educate them 
is to let them know what their roles are and what they can do so they can perform better. And that includes not just uh, talking to them, it's training with them, it's having exercises with them, so they and their staff understand what a critical role that they will play in disasters. Another topic that is not, not often or not often enough talked about are the mental health consequences in disasters. I think particularly in long-duration events, uh, or in the case of Puerto Rico, where it's so devastating that you take out all the infrastructure, uh, or, or most of the infrastructure. Uh, how are we? How is the response community beginning to deal with their role in dealing with these mental health issues? I think there's one important thing to look at in disasters that does get often overlooked is some of the mental health issues. And the mental health issues are not limited to just the survivors and the families. It also includes the responders the first responders, the emergency managers, the staff that go to the site, uh, because they're affected as well. And I think it's something that we probably haven't been as good at in the long term of looking at the the first responders. I think the police, fire, and EMS have a pretty good record because they're so used to dealing with it, not but can obviously do much better. Emergency management is an area we really have to work at because especially after the initial response and you're dealing with long-term recovery in some of the horrific conditions that the people are going through. And you see not just one family a day, you can see 10, 20, 30 families a day. And you see this day after day after day for sometimes six months without a day off can have an impact as well. So I think we have to look at the certainly all the workers, their mental health, but as important as all the survivors as well, and make sure that the mental health assets are there. The Red Cross has some great assets, has as well as Health and Human Services, has the ability to bring in assets through FEMA uh, to help fund those. And it's something that the earlier that it's addressed, the better. We don't have to wait till there are problems, because after many disasters, especially we, we see an increase in drug use, we see an increase in alcoholism, we see an increase in domestic abuse. So as we see an increase in all these, it's going to put even more stresses on, because people now have, in addition, they've lost their homes, not totally lost, damaged. They may have lost loved ones. On top of that, they may have lost their job because of the economy. So very high stressors in the community. So have to really address those mental health issues, and the sooner we address those after a disaster, the better long-term recovery will happen in the community. As much as rebuilding homes, we have to rebuild lives as well. So it sounds like what you're recommending is you should, you should assume there will be mental health issues to deal with either among the responders or the survivors. It should be part of your basic planning protocol is to know where you're going to get the resources to put in place to handle them. I, I would go past just assume it will happen. You, you will have mental health issues in both the survivors and the, the responders. Another issue I want to talk about is sort of the, the, the customization of response, as it were, in that I think at one time it was sort of a one-size-fits-all, here's our shelter, you're lucky you've got it, we've got you here. But we now have a lot of variety in our community. So if you bring people who need kosher or, or halal meals and you don't have them, they can't eat. Or facilities where... Uh, in communities where we're used to keeping men and women separate under certain circumstances, and you haven't, you can't do that. That's not culturally appropriate. Or even the issue of pets. I think for young and particularly young and childless and older and childless residents, the pet can be family, and they don't want to evacuate without the pet. And knowing how you can handle different constituencies is becoming an added level of complexity to response. Are you, are you seeing that out there, and how are people handling it? Uh, it it certainly has been an issue. Uh, I think there's been marked improvement uh, since Hurricane Katrina uh, now 
12, 13 years ago, we've seen a marked improvement, still a ways to go. We have, what we have seen is that there are many places that for pets to go, a lot of shelters are pet friendly and there are separate, sometimes separate shelters for uh, pets to go to. Some bring all together. There's also the ability that as we start to look at this, to see that we can bring together, make sure there is food, there culturally appropriate food, but that's also understanding the community that you live in as a local emergency manager, understanding that there is food available there. Understanding that you are going to probably have a large amount of kids and a large amount of elderly folks as well. And how do you deal with those to make sure that you have diapers and formula to make sure there's activities for kids to do? At the same time, on the other end, to make sure that we have appropriate cots and places for elderly to lay down on to, that's appropriate for them. Every uh, shelter has to be ADA compliant to make sure that people, uh, everybody's able to use the shelter. So as people are starting to look at their shelters ahead of time to make sure that they meet those needs. So we've made great strides, but I think a very long way to go. The Red Cross has done some amazing work in, in updating the shelters and having it uh, appropriate. And we also saw something that in Florida I thought was, was very well done is to look for the survivors to be volunteers in shelters. For the folks who were, who were also became homeless need to go somewhere but were able-bodied to help work at the shelters. So again, a way to take the survivors, make them part of the solution versus part of the problem, making the asset versus the liability. Something that may also help with some of the mental health, health issues because now someone feels useful and engaged as opposed to sitting around just uh, having to deal with having lost uh, their home or a lot of their possessions. Absolutely. And then you also have somebody there that knows the community and understands the needs of the community better than anybody that could come from outside. They understand what people in that community need. They're going through it, so they are going to be one of the best helps there. You certainly need some of the professional staff on site, but having additional people to help out, it, it turned out to be one, a great asset that worked in Florida. So just to bring us home here on this program, could you give us say three top takeaways from the season and how you think we should be doing things differently in 2018 and beyond? Uh, sure, I think there's a, a couple of things. This was uh, one of the worst hurricane seasons as far as the three of the largest storms we, we've ever seen that hit the United States. I think one is that we have to remember to keep the survivors first. I remember that we're dealing with people, uh, dealing with their needs, both uh, physical and emotional needs as well. Um, I also think we have to look at what worked and what didn't work and why. And I know FEMA is going through and the states are going through that process now. What, what really worked well uh, and how we can improve? And there's a whole list on, on both of those that's probably worthy of a whole other podcast. And I think third, as we start to look forward, we have to look at new tools. We have to look at artificial intelligence, machine learning, what we're able to do, how we're able to bring new technologies to bear so we can uh, look. One of the questions was, do we have to evacuate Houston? And the decision was made, no, we're not evacuating all of millions of people in Houston. Well, really, we maybe only had to evacuate about 33,000 to a different part of Houston. If we start to look at how we can bring down to the hyper-local level using new uh, tools, artificial intelligence, machine learning, in addition to social media, it can change the way that we look at disasters going forward. But I think we always have to remember that we have to put people first. Well, great. Thank you very much, Rich Serino. Again, Rich is a distinguished senior fellow at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. 
former Deputy Administrator of FEMA and the former Chief of EMS in Boston. It's been great to get his perspective on the storms of this past year and insights on how we can do things differently going forward. Again, thanks, Rich. Thanks, Eric. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.